0: we don't remain in that humble place and how could a person be saved unless they recognize i'm a sinner i mean what do you need a cr- the cross for what do you need christ for what do you need salvation for if you're okay hello and welcome to this edition of that they might know a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of jesus christ I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace that you take sinners, save them, and then send them out. To proclaim the gospel to other sinners. It's a formidable task to say the least. I think of William Carey, who uh, sent to that poverty stricken India, where, you know, in that with that backdrop, coming back from the mission field, they, they asked him what it was like, and he said it was one sinner telling another sinner where to find bread. And, dear Lord, I, I know uh, that you are an awesome God. And I know that we are just that, all of us. We are just sinners saved by grace. And the only thing that has prevented us from going to hell for eternity is just that grace. Overlooking through the blood of the cross the sacrifice and Calvary, making it possible for you to, having dealt with it already, to not deal with each one of our our own sins. And I I give you praise and honor and glory for that. The choices are yours. You're sovereign. You are over all things in all ways. It's beyond our our comprehension, and it's beyond our minds to conceive of these things, because we live in life and we go through it and we make our own decisions and we do things and we make choices and we, we feel like we're making our own lives and it's just, it's all kind of fake and facade because we've been blinded by not only the way life is but because of our sinful, deceived heart, the pride that wells up and changes us into people that just don't know the truth. Lord, save us from that. Save us from our the penalty of sin for eternity. Yes, but save us, Lord, from deception and lies and all that the devil has done and is continuing to do to plow, to put blinders over the eyes of people so that they can't see. Things for what they are. Give us grace in this time together, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is episode 59 in the Not I, But Christ series. This particular episode is entitled Seeing in a Mirror Dimly. Seeing in a Mirror Dimly. You know, in in ancient times, the best people... Could do to see themselves was to polish metal as best they could, which gave them a distorted view at best. Just think about that some piece of copper and just get it to the most clear you could. It'd be kind of like in going to the, you know, funny uh, amusement park and seeing those, the way that people are distorted. We are told, however, in 1 Corinthians 13 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, and that word dimly in Greek is a mystery, we see in a mirror a riddle, an enigma, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. It's a kind of a a hard to grasp, and yet not, verse, because when we look at life, we we can realize at times that, gee, things just don't make sense sometimes. I mean, a Christian comes to Christ saved by the blood, trans, in the process of being transformed. And if you look closely at yourself, uh, so to speak, in a mirror, the mirror of the word, things can at times be very confusing. That's why he says this. Now we see in a mirror as a mystery. you know. But then face to face. We, we all, each and every one of us that have received Jesus Christ as Lord, as Lord and Savior, have a responsibility to be transparent before him so that he will reveal to us who we are in truth. Hiding from Jesus the way Adam and Eve tried to hide from God in the garden will not make our lives better. Because the last part of that verse is now I know in part, but then I will fully known just as I also have been fully known. Some think because of the construction of this Greek phrase at the end of this sentence that the way a Christian opens himself up to see who he really is, to that extent He will see God fully. For each one of us, we can see God fully for what we are filled with. No one can take in uh, the God. That would be like taking the oceans of the world into a thimble. Uh, So there is that aspect of being filled to the full with Christ or with God, knowing that that we can't have all of God. Uh, Certainly not at one time. When salvation comes, the real thing, not walking through the motions without an inward reality. When salvation is deep and real, at that point a person comes to see themselves better than they ever have before. We see ourselves as sinners, wretched men, hell-deserving sinners, in many places in the New Testament, we are warned, I mean this is just repeated, warned to remain in that place, that place of seeing ourselves that humbles us. Let me give you a few, John fifteen two, and then 4 and 5, every branch that bears fruit he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Speaking of Jesus, speaking of the Father. To prune is to cut back. As we begin to think well of ourselves, God comes to us with a knowledge of our, fa- our falling short and our sin. He's cutting us back if we're transparent enough, if we're willing to see what the Holy Spirit is convicting us with. If we receive the the truth, we grow. Verse 4, Remain in me, and I in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. If we don't remain in that humble place, and how could a person be saved unless they recognize, I'm a sinner, I mean, what do you need the cross for? What do you need Christ for? What do you need salvation for if you're okay? Jesus said, I I didn't come for the righteous, but to bring sinners to repentance. To be separated from Christ is to be separated from the sanctifying work that produces change and thereby fruit. Separation from Christ is the worst thing. So verse 5 says in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, in the parable of the sower, some seeds fall on the good ground and produce 30, 60, and 100%. In the parable of the sower, some seeds uh, that fall and produce 30%, it would seem there's not the transparency Transparency, they are needed to produce more fruit than that. And 60, and the person who's at 100% is just staying humble and just remaining to stay open to everything that God wants to show them in their life. To produce fruit, we must continue to know Jesus even when it hurts, especially when it hurts. I've heard many testimonies over the years. And I can say, probably without much contradiction, and I have to apologize for my voice, I've been losing it over the last few days, is that many testimonies will glorify God for things he did for people, and that's glorious. I mean, God is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord thy provider. He provides, absolutely. But why so few about God bringing the truth to our mind and our hearts about our souls and the condition we're in? You know, that's... (laughs) <laughs> Every bit is important. First John 2.28 says, Now little children, remain in him. Same idea, abiding. Some of your, your translations will say, Remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not draw back from him in shame at his coming. End quote. The days are evil, and like Abraham's nephew Lot... We can find ourselves at the city gate thinking thoughts we should not and having a manner unbecoming to our Lord Jesus Christ. All believers ought, caught in such a condition at, at Jesus' coming will shrink back in shame. Make no, just make no uh, mistake about that. I seriously doubt dying in such a condition will be much better. So we are to remain in him. That's close. That's humble. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, James tells us. 1 Corinthians 13, 16 and 17. Do, quote, do, not, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now I'm sure that some will say at this point, now wait a minute, aren't our sins under the blood? This is not about sins. This is about building God's house. And that's the context of this. So in verse 14 it says, if any man destro- uh, destroys, in the Greek, that is, corrupts, spoils, the temple of God, <clears throat> God will corrupt or spoil him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are this is uh this is about and we can't change the words or the thoughts this is exactly what God said will happen we're talking about the judgment seat of Christ further down in the chapter we realize that it's important we put this verse in its context which context is workers in erecting God's building. As in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So whether you're laboring in a field that things might grow or you're laboring to construct a building for the house of God, you're you're working where God has placed you in the body of Christ to build up the body of Christ. In verse nine, we told, "For we are God's fellow workers; you are God's field, God's building." These metaphors are, you know, they're meant to give us an idea of the building that's taking place, the work, the labor. He begins in chapter three by chiding the Corinthians for misplacing, um, misplacing honor on men. <clears throat> Excuse me, that belong to God alone. The honor belongs to God alone, and they're honoring men more than they should. Such people who overemphasize the honor belonging to men are babies in the faith, people of flesh, not spiritual. They do not walk in the spirit filled life, they're not transparent and humble before God as we are all meant to be, but make themselves out to be something they're not. This is what the judgment seat of Christ will be about, uh, by and large. We are part of God's plan to bring souls to Christ, and once they come, to disciple them to maturity. This responsibility belongs to the church as a whole, not just to a select few. Verse 12, Now, if any man builds on the foundation of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This doesn't sound like fun to me. It doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard emphasized much in the church. Uh, I think we are, have been so, had the, the love of God so ingrained in our hearts, and it's been like for 150 years now, you know, we've, and it's deception through the through the devil just pushing the holiness pushing the love I'm sorry of God rather than emphasizing equally the holiness and righteousness of God this uh, this seat here is about this test is about being burned burning what doesn't belong wood hay and stubble you know it goes up one quicker than another uh, gold silver precious stone are metals that no matter how you burn them, You know, the good stuff is going to remain. It's going to last. It's going to be more pure. And that, in part, is the whole purpose of that judgment. God wants us with that which builds his house well. If it is not yet clear what can become a huge problem in the church, here it is beginning in verse 18 from Corinthians 3, quote, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. So let's understand that there's wisdom that comes from God, and then there is the wisdom of the world that comes from the devil. They both look and sound at times like wisdom. One is, and one is not. Continuing on in verse 19, for it is written, quote, this from the Old Testament, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Verse 20, and again, from another quote from the Old Testament, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So he catches men in wisdom, in their craftiness, it's really about being crafty. It's about being slick. It's about getting the best for yourself. It has that self-centeredness at its center, uh, and it's useless. Verse 21, so then let no one boast in men. Listen, this is, this is, we are told strictly here by God not to do these things. Now, if you're honest with yourself, is one thing, and if you start to see where all of that begins and it continues, and it's it's just dramatically extensive in the church, then you know you can you can actually come out from under its grasp. But if you won't recognize it, if you fight against this all with all you have, well, then you you're not gonna see it, and the judgment won't be as pleasant for you as you might want it to be. Continuing on in verse 21, For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life, death, or, or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. So men were making a big deal out of Paul and Apollos and Cephas. I don't know. I know Paul wasn't. I don't know how much these men were accepting it without stopping them and saying this is not where the praise belongs. But th- that's what they want. that's what people want to do. In verse 23... And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Look, submission to one another, love for one another, understanding that we are people under authority, whether it's God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit, we are people who deserve hell. And we have to continue to humble ourselves. Take one giant step back with me for a minute. And consider what people boast about in church. If the first line does not say something about their pastor, you know, when they're considering, you know, what's your church like? You must be on another planet. And if it's not the first one, it's going to be right up there at at the top. When Paul pointed out how men fall to idolatries in Romans 1, he began by saying men understand design, and purpose that the earth was created by an eternal being. But men refused to acknowledge the truth, and as a result, he tells us this, quote, verse 21, they became futile in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. If we don't worship God in truth, we will begin to the worshiping of ourselves and others around us. And believe me, if you're not worshiping in yourself and you're worshiping other men, worship, false worship is false worship. Don't, don't think that you're being slick and you got out of this. Or you're not guilty because you're not worshiping yourself. You just think this other person, you're lifting them up. And look, I'm just honoring... Yeah, Paul understood that too. Paul understood honoring men in the right way. But the Corinthians didn't do it well. Most people don't do it well. It would be better off to assume we're not doing it well and leave ourselves open for the kind of conviction that the Holy Spirit wants to bring in our lives and stop these things. For some time now, I've been reading Ian Murray's book, The Life of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um approaching the ending, which will take me to 460 pages. It's been a great, wonderful read for a man such as myself. You know, to hear about a brilliant man, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, landing at the second position in the medical community in Wales at 25 years old. However, his life at that point, in 1925, took a major direction change when at that time he realized his call to ministry. He stepped away from the second position in his nation, coming from a poor background, by the way, to follow Christ. The first leg of his journey began on the correct foot. Why? When he chose to attend, not to attend seminary. Some will say, uh, did I hear that right? Wait a minute, what did you just say? Yes, you heard me correctly. And here's my thought. If you were the devil, and you could do far more than any mere human being, where would you first attack the kingdom of God? I know where I would attack. I'd like to kill every general I could find, all the officers, all the people who... Could strategize to win the battles the best, but if I couldn't destroy them, if God's sovereignty would not allow that, uh, I would, I would, uh, I would corrupt them. I would uh, corrupt them every way I could so they couldn't think straight and they would make all the mistakes they could. And that's exactly what He's been doing for two thousand years. Did it in Israel for uh, fifteen hundred years. And what is caught in seminary is uh, this, this, this thing. Uh, one thing for certain, and that is there is a difference between minister and member. Now that's a great victory for the devil. I mean a great victory. You put these people into two distinct categories. All the weight and responsibility sits on the preacher, and barely any on the weight of the member. And, and how many members you got versus pastors? Specifically with these mega churches today? Well, I, mean, I mean, you talk about a win. Yeah, the devil's done some great winning. The pulpit outweighs the pew, if you get my drift. Now, to be clear, I am not saying that there's not a vital and necessary place for scriptural grounding, that there isn't a vital place for knowing the doctrinal battles that have been fought and won and lost in history. And for everyone to come down to the place that pleases God. And I mean come down on that place where the scriptures are teaching this and not that. You know, this doctrinal error, this denominational error. You know, those things need to be studied and learned and avoided. I am not knocking learning. Okay? What I do doubt is that while everyone would say they agree with what I just said in particular... Uh, It can't be meant. Otherwise, the true church would not be fractured into a thousand pieces as it is. And it is. Denominations, I mean just nation, church to church, member to member. I mean, it's crazy. Members within the same church. And we just want to make excuses for all of this. So first, the seminary trained replacing the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which causes a rift between pastor and parishioner. Second, We have denominational differences causing a rift from one church to another. What do I mean by replacing the ministry by the Holy Spirit? Of the Holy Spirit? Get this. You can study this for yourself, but it is known among those who study revivals that have taken place in church history that extraordinary things happen through people who are not officially trained. For instance, preaching breaks out from people who are moved by God and not a textbook, you know, but, but the Bible. Stephen is often thought of as one of these people. The truth about Stephen is he's no doubt studied his Bible and spent a lot of time in it. And he was moved by the Holy Spirit who was poured out on the day of Pentecost in a most extraordinary way. God had no intention of using only 12 men. That's ridiculous when there are thousands of people who could share the gospel, bring them into Christ as they were being taught and as they were maturing in the faith under the preaching and the teaching of the apostles. I mean, come on. Let's, let's use, you know, what we have, which the best thing is people. Today in this mega church era in America, in which we live with all our showmanship, preaching to please, vast entertainment circuits, and every gimmick under the sun to draw people into church, our greatest need is to turn the church into a house of prayer and to ask God for revival. Not fraudulent, not man-centered, not feeling-centered, not prideful extravaganzas, but where men fall down on their knees crippled, by our own sin and pride and fleshly living, our lusts, all of the wickedness that dwells in us. If you are not familiar with Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was born five years before the first great Welsh revival, where it is believed that approximately 100,000 people were saved during the course of one year time. There was a subsequent revival Martin was aware of the revival and he was sent to a small, rundown church with barely a congregation. Why? Because the presbytery and the church in which he belonged uh, didn't, they said he didn't go to seminary and he didn't deserve anything better than that. As a pastor, he was a, just a sinner saved by grace. And it was not Martin alone who caused growth in the church, but the membership as a whole, as they began to grow and get saved and start to pray, they became vibrant, prayerful, and spiritual. Didn't happen to the brilliance of someone as his stature. It happened through God. Okay? Throughout history, at certain times, God has poured out his spirit to the saving of many souls during a relatively small period of time. Many things have been written by the Reformers, the Puritans, the, covenant, the Covenanters, those of the Great Awakening, and so on. John Knox explained what he saw at the Reformation in the words, quote, God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance, end quote. The following is a quote from Martin's biography about the need to understand the history of the church, page 361. Quote, Given the existence of such a diversity of thought, it might be wondered how the revival sermons could speak to all. Lloyd-Jones' answer was that underneath, there was just one need, a clearer vision and consciousness of God. Not so much changed opinions as a higher realization of the glory of God. This is what the Spirit teaches, and at times when he teaches with special power, The fear of God takes hold of people and churches. They begin to see what an appalling thing sin is in the sight of God. Never has there been a revival, but that some of the people, especially at the beginning, have had such visions of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin that they have scarcely known what to do with themselves. This is brokenness. I mean, this is George Woodfield. 30 days to come to salvation. He almost starved himself to death, crushed under the, of, under the weight of his sins. Just brutal. Today, people hear how God's going to fix their life. They come to Jesus or they don't. They attend church. They walk down an aisle. They pray a prayer. And they're in. Not necessarily a transformation of their life and their heart and their decisions. All of that stays the same, but You know, they say they're in. Let me suggest what church people need to do with themselves. First, the church in America needs to pray for revival. What is the evidence of a God-produced revival? Number one, when revival comes, it breaks people so they see themselves as they are, as God sees them, not through a glass dimly, a mirror dimly, as as it might be otherwise, and but they, God opens our eyes to our sinfulness. And I'm not saying about everything. And I'm not saying the glories of heaven and words that Paul heard that he couldn't speak. and I'm not talking about all of that. I'm talking about seeing ourselves in truth, in reality, not what we want to see. Revival, number two, is brought about by the Holy Spirit and not people. And that becomes evident. As you pray for revival, you pray for this. Pray that we see the work of the Holy Spirit and not what we think is the work of the Holy Spirit. Three, revival replaces God's Word in the primary, or places God's Word in the primary position so that God and not human ideas are prominent. Also, to that faith, so that faith becomes important. So that faith, faith has to be very important. When men replace human interpretations with interpretation that come from God, faith replaces human pride. Hear that? Faith replaces human pride. We are proud in our denominations. Revival number four illuminates the hearts of the born again with a need for unity. Just study the seventh chapter of John's Gospel and you'll find if you pray for it. that every phrase speaks of unity. Unity between the Father and the Son, the people of God has chosen with himself and with one another, the unity that the Spirit brings, the Holy Spirit, all unity, unity, unity in every section. You'll see it in every phrase if you're looking for it. Not to read it in, you can just read it there. Number five, revival makes the meaning of Scripture clear to all so that they may collectively be of one mind. Now you know that there's no revival when there's such division. Number five, revival makes the meaning of Scripture clear. I'm sorry. Number six, revival brings to life love. A love of God and a love between God's people and a love for the lost. Number seven, revival gives people a sense of awe and self sacrifice. Just read the four chapters, the first four chapters of Acts, and you understand there's awe. They're standing in awe of God. This isn't just a song that sounds good, I mean, they're actually doing that to the changing, the priorities of elevating men to a place they don't belong and elevating God who does belong there. If you want to pray for revival, pray for the following. <clears throat> Number one, orthodoxy without pride. And I'll probably take this up in the next time I do podcast. Orthodoxy without pride. The church can be divided into two basic camps by Satan's design. Number one: the camp of the Orthodox who take pride in being right. And there is a right and a wrong. Regardless of what you taught, regardless that everybody has their own truth and everybody's right today, that's a lie. One person is always right and another person is wrong. <clears throat> the, na- the truth is narrow. The way to heaven is narrow. Jesus said it's narrow. Number two is the camp of the emotional who take pride in being spiritual people of faith. So those two camps both have their own issues, their own shortcomings, and their own temptations and how they fall. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be humbled. The Spirit-filled people are needy people, prayerful people. Mostly loving people who do not think of themselves better than others. And there's plenty of scriptures for this. So the church in revival is a spirit-filled church. Ephesians chapter 5, 15 through 19 says this. It gives us a concise meaning and fruit of the spirit-filled life. Beginning at verse 16. 15, I'm sorry. So then be careful how you walk. Not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, in which there is debauchery or excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord." Always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our God and Father. And subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. Just quickly running through these phrases and verses. 15a, the apostle is speaking to our walk primarily, not our learning. The church is not primarily a school. It's primarily a a prayer room and learning takes place as much in life as it does in the Word of God. You learn the Word of God and you're able, therefore, to decipher life. So as life comes at you, you get it. If you don't get it, you're not open, you're not humble, you're not hearing what the Spirit has to say to you and you're just going to continue to make that same mistake again and again. 15b Wisdom is begotten by God, and not a seminary professor. They can be wise, but not in and of themselves. 16a, if we are to make the most of our time, we must be spirit-filled. Be filled with the Spirit. 16b, the days are evil, and that means filled with lies, deceptions, misunderstandings, and more, because the devil is a liar in the beginning... Uh, he was a liar from the beginning, and we are, we are no match for him. In 17a, the only alternative to a spirit-filled life is to be a fool. And the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So this is w- w- what we're talking about here In if you read through these verses. In, in 17b, the person who believes in God diligently seeks him and his will, as we find in Hebrews 11.6. In 18.8, God's revealed will in his word is to not get drunk, which is excess. And excess is never a good thing. And no matter what is excessive in your life, it turns out to be a no good thing. And it will separate you from God. So rather than being filled with the very presence of God so that he can work through us as an empty vessel, we're filled with ourselves, our own pride. And no matter how spiritual we feel or brilliant we think we are, we're not usable by God. doesn't matter what it looks like. We could take that principle of excess into every area of our lives. Or uh, 18B, be filled with the Spirit, is in the present continuous tense. For those who think the filling is one time only, as if sin's guilt does not keep us from seeking God. Confession of sin, according to first John one throughout that whole chapter, must be made if we are to remain filled with the Spirit. People get filled with themselves, they get laxadaisical, they don't care, they get lethargic, so to speak, they just it's they're not they're not passionate about their faith anymore. Where's that come from? Pride, sin, unconfessed. And they're not filled with the Spirit. It doesn't mean that you weren't saved necessarily. But if you were saved, are you filled with the Spirit? You don't function well unless you remain in Him. That's where we began. We must be connected to the vine. That's, that's Spirit filling. Verse 19 the first fruit of the Spirit is a joyful attitude. When you're joyful, you want to sing. I'm not longing, long, I'm no longer facing eternity in hell myself, personally, why why wouldn't I want to sing? I mean, when I think about the good that's happened to me, I I mean, I can just stop. And you know what? I mean, it's just the thankfulness just gushes out. How could it not? I mean, I'm not not going to hell. But if we're not filled with the Spirit, it just loses its luster. Verse 20, giving thanks and the recognition that everything comes from God and all the rest of evil is mankind's fault, beginning with me. That's a spirit-filled, that's a revived church. 21A, why subject ourselves to one another? That's what it says, subjecting yourselves one to another. The first thing that's accomplished when we subject ourselves to one another is it eliminates any hierarchy. We're all equals. Now, when I say we're all equals, I don't mean like in Marxism. You know, we all have different gifts, callings, abilities. You know, there's an awful lot different in the world. I'm not suggesting that those things are all the same. You know, men, women, everything. That's crazy in the world today, in our country. It sounds impossible when we say subject ourselves to one another when things are so different. But you know what? There's only one way to submit everyone to one another. Only one way. That's right. You probably guessed it, right? Be filled with the Spirit. Empty self, which you can't do. I mean, you can pray for it. You know, if the gods going to give a fish and not a stone, how much more will he not give the Holy Spirit to them who ask? Right. You know the verse? Look it up. 21B, which is why the next phrase is in the fear of Christ. Submit yourselves one to another. What? In the fear of Christ. The words "twas grace that taught my heart to fear" was by that wonderful preacher and songwriter John Newton, author of Amazing Grace. A well-saved man no sooner joys in the forgiveness of his sins than he sees righteous indignation that drew the crucible of the cross and the price that we avoided, but the Son didn't avoid that for us. To elevate ourselves over our brothers in an evil way is to elevate ourselves over God's will. At that point, we have taken our eyes off the cross. Orthodoxy without pride means that the Baptist is not better than the Pentecostal or the Pentecostal is not better than the Baptist. How does that make you feel? Do you feel spirit-filled like right now? Do you feel that you are in the midst of revival right now? Do you feel orthodox? And if so, are you spirit-filled at the same time? Do you feel full of faith in the Holy Spirit at the same time, humble enough to submit yourself to Baptist brothers? No? (laughs) What happened? Think about it. Think about it. You know when you're spirit-filled, when you think better of others. And you start to question yourselves to see if you're really thinking correctly. Number two, if you want to really pray for revival, and this is just two points to bring us to the conclusion here, is number two is a self-denying and not a self-centered Christianity. Pray for a self-denying and not a self-centered Christianity. A widely known passage in the foundational teaching concerning the practice within the church, is Matthew sixteen twenty-one to 23 Probably very familiar to you. Beginning in 21 says from that time Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes and to be killed and to be raised up on the third day. And yet Peter took him aside began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but men's. Number one takeaway from this passage. Just because a man creates a meal for fifteen to 20,000 people, including women and children, you know, why think, why think that he's God? I mean, you might as well say that about Peter because you don't just buttonhole Jesus Christ if you think he's God. Unless, you know, because the idea of dying for a cause is basically contrary to who we are as sinful people. We don't think that dying for the cause, certainly not as in the kingdom of God, and they're expecting the kingdom to come, remember. Nevertheless, all the disciples would go to their death, if you include John starving to death on the Isle of Patmos. Number three, so Peter buttonholes Jesus in Greek and rebukes God. We should not be shocked at this because as a people, I mean, who do, we do, don't we do the same thing all the time with our attitudes and our actions? I mean, every time we're aggravated because something didn't go exactly the way we thought it should. I mean, isn't that the same thing, really? I mean, every time, you know, life is supposed to go this way and it goes that, and we don't actually curse God, but we do. If we're really angry, we think it's wrong until God turns us around. Hopefully, I've been turned around more times than I care to think about. Uh, Uh. I'm just I'm I have a very rebellious side of me. Do you? Number four, nevertheless, Jesus puts Peter in his place by rattling him to his core with the words, quote, Get behind me, Satan. I I can't imagine what Peter felt like. Well, I kind of can, but uh <laughs> It had to be devastating to the man. I mean, he loves Jesus. He's in the presence of Almighty God. He's the presence of a of God in the form of man that loves like no one, not even close. You know, we, we do not value the mission of the church if we place its survival in this life and the world before its eternal destiny. We do not value the mission of the church if we place its survival in this life and world before its eternal destiny, every church should find itself stoned to death if they're following the persecutions. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. I mean, he did God used him in doing great works and raising up people and starting churches to which he had appended reproof after reproof after reproof for going off track. But he was always diving in to persecution, from prison to prison to prison. He always ran headlong into persecution. But Jesus, to make the point, after following up with Peter, he quotes, quote, You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but men's. What's that? It's not self-sacrifice. It's self-survival. Yes, self-survival is not the Jesus way. So, revival is the outpouring of the life of God into empty human hearts. The more we fill ourselves with worldly philosophies, such as, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, end quote, the further we move away from Christ's will for the Church. The Church has, since its dim beginning, has sought the favor of the world, thinking that is best way to preach the gospel. The church, however, is not called to befriend the world any more than Israel was. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your word Also, And the division there, of course, is between the saved and the lost by the sovereignty of Almighty God. The church is called to take a claim to living God's way in this world. Many times the way Christians live can attract people, at least at the beginning. I just heard yesterday about, you know, over, it sounds like tens of thousands of people being saved in India right now, certain parts of India. But you know, eventually, the world will always do to the church what it did to Christ, which was to kill him. So it was that Jesus continued in Mark 16. Then, quote, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That deny there is unwilling to associate with ourselves. We see what it is, like looking at ourselves just in Romans 7 for the believer. And please don't run back there and misunderstand what it says there. Uh, I'll have to do a study on that soon. Uh, If anyone wants to come after me, he must refuse to associate with himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's a humble man seeing the wickedness of sin. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? I mean, the world doesn't go into eternity. Only the souls of men go into a new heaven and a new earth. Well, what will a person give in exchange for his soul? You can't. It's worth everything. Everything by comparison is worth nothing. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every person according to his deeds. The deeds we're talking about today is about looking into this mirror which is dim it's 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 a, an enigma it's a mystery you know it's just hard to understand who we are and we say god show me who i am i guarantee that prayer will never when spoken with the least bit of sincerity and honesty will never go unanswered god delights in the person of the holy spirit who brings jesus christ to to us in the cross to open our eyes to that reality of who we are without Christ and that we must flee to him. Let us pray for revival. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that teaches us from so many passages throughout the scripture that life is about being empty. It's not being empty full with this world's goods. It may look like prosperity. It may sound like prosperity. It may even in some ways exalt God's grace um, to be filled with the attainments uh, of this life. But Lord, to uh, attain to the character of Christ, to be filled with that presence of Christ who comes to us and shows us who we are meant to be. Those of us who have been called in divine sovereignty to heaven. For us, all things work together for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. And that purpose is that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We don't have to be silly about why bad things happen. In every case, there is this, this growing in the very character of Christ. He's our high priest who was not untouched by the feelings of our infirmities, but in all ways was tempted like we are, yet without sin. And he wants that for us. So if we lose a loved one, If we're persecuted and thrown in prison for 10 years, as horrible as that is, if we're mistreated at work, if we lose our job, if we lose our health, we have this, that this life is passing away. It's just a, a, a moment in time, and it's gone forever, and then there's eternity. And for us, our eternity is the glories that we can't even imagine now. Lord, lift us up to that place willing to see The sin that is so nasty that dwells alongside of the new person that has been recreated in Christ if, in fact, we are believers. And we're a new person. Old things are passing away. All things are becoming new because of this transforming process that we're in. I give you the glory and the praise for the transformation. Lord, deliver us from stubbornness and rebellion and pride and being filled with ourselves instead of being willing to be emptied so we might be filled with the Spirit of the living God. Bless us now in in the mindset of these things. I ask it in Jesus' name.